Okay, so let's get the mood going here. Imagine it. The coffee machine is bubbling and gurgling away in the corner. There's wood in the hearth, but for now we're going to have to put up with a candle because it's way too hot and I have a sunburnt face as a bonus. The smell of musty paper and the subtle sweetness of vanilla is in the air and you're gathered with some of your closest book friends to talk about your latest find. I'm Ray, and welcome to another episode of Not Before Coffee, The Bookshop, where I talk about my most recent reads and hopefully encourage you to go and pick up a copy. This week, I am legitimately looking at a classic. I have read a lot of books that may possibly be considered classics in the future, and here I'm looking right at the two amazing mythology books by Madeline Miller, but for now, this book definitely qualifies. I'm going to be talking about the 1908 novel by E.M. Forster, A Room with a View. I read this book for the first time after I'd seen the film, which is something that rarely happens these days. However, when the film first came out in 1985, I was just 11 and I shared a fascination for historical drama with my grandparents. It was only after I had seen the film that they gifted me with a copy of the book and I still have it. I have to be honest, it's very rare that I like the film adaptation covers and will go out of my way to find one that isn't. However, this one is stunning, and if you want to see what I mean, just have a check over my Instagram page and you'll see photos. I'm not going to be talking about the film, though it may well be that certain elements do slip through the cracks, as they are both somewhat entwined in my mind, and to be honest, the adaptation is actually quite close to the source text. This book actually inspired a lot of my love of romance novels, though it's far more Pride and Prejudice than anything by Nicholas Sparks. You can transmute love, ignore it, muddle it, but you can never pull it out of you. When Lucy visits Italy with her prim and proper cousin Charlotte, she is on the verge of an experience that will throw her neatly ordered life quite off balance. Back in England, she finds that her relationship with her family with the unconventional Emersons and her supercilious fiancé pull her between the social and sexual proprieties of her upbringing and the spontaneous promptings of her heart. And of course, it is the heart that wins in this sunniest and most reasonable of Forster's works. If you're anything like me or you just love beautiful films, then you will know how this story ends. But how do we reach that point? Just as the title suggests, it all starts with a room with a view. Lucy Honeychurch is on her first sojourn away from home without her mother. This is her version of the Grand Tour. She has had a very sheltered upbringing and her cousin Charlotte Bartlett is of the belief that Lucy needs to be protected from anything that could be considered damaging to her reputation. She feels that it is her responsibility to be Lucy's moral compass. However, there are many moments in the book where Charlotte's behaviour appears to be solely for the best intentions, but it would be incredibly easy to see the undertones of selfishness that motivate these actions. In the beginning, there is a misunderstanding. Upon arriving at the Pension Bertolini, Lucy and Charlotte are disappointed to discover that not only are their rooms not the southern rooms with beautiful views of the Arno, 
but the signora who booked them in is as cockney as they come. While discussing their disappointment with other guests also staying at the pension, George Emerson and his father, who both have rooms with a southerly view, offer to swap. A most gentlemanly behaviour, you would have thought. Initially, there are protests, though at least on the part of Charlotte, they are insincere. At least, that is how I perceive them. And thus, they get their rooms with a view, and Lucy earns the attention of the shy and seemingly unusual George. While on their trip, Charlotte befriends Reverend Beebe and Eleanor Lavish, a rather exuberant woman who claims to know the real Italy, as she is an expat who lives there. It is while Lucy is with her on a wander around the city that Eleanor abandons her for an acquaintance she simply must catch up with, and Lucy bumps into the Emersons. Without the influence of a disapproving Charlotte or the unreasonably snobbish Miss Lavish, Lucy realises that she likes this father and son. George is quiet and intense, but incredibly observant, and his father is simply a genuine person. She also encounters the crueler side of the country when she witnesses a vicious murder on the streets, and understandably, given she is a genteel lady who has never seen anything like it, she faints. George comes to her aid, and a bond is built. There are so many misunderstandings and cruel judgments in this book, especially when it comes to the Emersons and Charlotte, who is in want of drama, thrives on gossip, and believes it when she is formed by another clergyman, Mr. Eager, who is one of Miss Lavish's friends, and therefore much more appropriate than Mr. Beebe, who is friendly and fun, that Mr. Emerson murdered his wife. Lucy has already decided to keep her distance from George for no other reason than she is meant to be a young woman with decorum and the emotions that Georgian's buyers in her are confusing. However, he has opened himself up to her and is ruled by his emotions rather than social conventions. So he is her complete opposite in this situation. On a day filled with gossip for Charlotte and adventure for Lucy, George steals a kiss in a field of wild flowers, and though she claims to Charlotte that it was an insult, it is clear that the effect was anything but, given her existing confusion when it comes to her feelings for him. Without delay, Charlotte, feeling as though she has failed Lucy's mother, and Lucy, when it comes to her role as a chaperone, insists that they depart for Rome immediately, giving Lucy no time at all to say goodbye to George. More misunderstandings. No sooner have Charlotte and Lucy departed for Rome than we meet her family, her brother Freddie and her mother Mrs Honeychurch, and her fiancé Cecil Vise, an unbearable snob and something of a bore, Lucy turned down two proposals from Cecil while they were in Rome. However, it feels as though she is somewhat pressured into accepting because her mother expects her to settle, and as Cecil is not only wealthy, but her mother knows his and therefore believes the union will be one that is socially acceptable, she doesn't really have a choice. It's apparent from the start that Lucy's younger brother, Freddie, believes the match to be a poor one, However, for Cecil, Lucy is perfect. She is naive, a country girl who will be easily cowed, not only by Cecil's mother, but also by London culture. She'll be easy to mould into the wife at home while he continues to live the social London life. 
Cecil is as far from George as it's possible to be, and this only becomes more apparent when George and his father make a return to her life when they rent a villa in the village of Windy Corner. Fate plays a very large part in this novel, and it definitely becomes clear when it comes to the Emerson's return to Lucy's life. Introduced to Lucy's brother Freddie, they become fast friends and start to spend time with them, which makes Lucy feel awkward as she remembers the kiss in a field of wildflowers, as well as the rather disinterested kiss she has shared with her fiancé. There is something almost otherworldly about George and his adoration of Lucy is just enchanting. In fact, it's one of the things that I read and it makes me swoon. Whereas Cecil appears to see her more as a belonging, something he has on a list that he needs to tick off. During the second part of the book, we discover a lot about Lucy and her relationship with Cecil, including the fact that he is disapproving of her upbringing. He is disappointed in the country life, being someone from London with a domineering mother and a lifestyle that is incredibly city-focused. It often feels as though he doesn't see Lucy as a person at all. She is simply something he has to possess. And a lot of this may be in part due to the fact that she turned him down twice before accepting him. Now she is his, he is no longer enticed. He is dismissive of the things that she enjoys, insulting to the people she calls friends, and believes that he knows so much better than her because he is from London. And yes, that is a repeated theme through the book. As though being from anywhere else counts for nothing. He is actually a really unlikable character. We also discovered that Charlotte, for all her protests that she would never dare to share the story of George, Lucy and their kiss, somehow this scene finds its way into a book written by the self-aggrandizing Miss Eleanor Lavish, a book that Cecil starts to read aloud during a tennis party at which George is in attendance. Charlotte is someone who comes across as a woman who desperately wants to fit in with a crowd that seems so socially above her, but in reality isn't, that she will do anything to acclimatise, including share tales that are not hers to tell. That she was so intent on behaving like the perfect chaperone and having her cousin believe that Lucy was safe within her care was clear, but she betrayed that trust when she shared a story that was Lucy's and could easily have led to ruin had it been shared as Mr. Eager's accusations of murder against Mr. Emerson. Being engaged to Cecil is having a negative effect on Lucy, where once she was vibrant and fun, enjoying life, and despite being told to behave like a lady, still finding amusement in her younger brother's often mischievous behaviour, she has toned down, putting on a facade of sensibility that is far better suited to Cecil and his strict, socially upstanding mother. George is a poetic soul, a romantic, and in Lucy he has found a woman he wants to live for. When reading into what his father says about him and his behaviours, it's very clear that for some unknown reason he was suffering from something incredibly similar to depression, though in the early 20th century would probably have been more commonly referred to as ennui, which is boredom. And I don't think that classifies at all. Boredom and depression are not the same thing. I could probably talk for hours about this book. In fact, I made so many notes this time I read it and the last time that I have so much I could say. Pick out quotes that I love, talk about every single moment in the novel. Some 
moments of which don't make it onto the screen and others which do. But this book is so beautifully written. This novel is definitely Lucy's story, and that is exactly what Forster intended it to be when he started it. But without the beautiful scenery of Florence and the tenderness of George's fascination with her, it could easily have fallen flat. Though Lucy fights it, in her heart George is the man who has captured her love. Cecil is merely a man who pushed his way in. In Surrey, he is Eleanor Lavish and Mr Eager. He is judgmental, rude, superior and unpleasant. He mocks everyone he believes lacks the sophistication he possesses because of his London upbringing and does his best to snuff out the vibrancy that Lucy has because she is all the things he mocks and looks down on. At the beginning of the book, when we're first introduced to George, he seems timid and quiet, almost a shadow of the man he becomes when he is finally able to show Lucy who he is. And no, I am not talking about the skinny dipping scene. <laughs> he is passionate, romantic and honest, as though he has no idea how to hide the person he is. He's genuine. I wish, I really do wish I could say that I like Charlotte Bartlett. But there is something about her that has forever felt fake. From the way that she protests Lucy having the larger room when the Emersons offer to swap at the Pension Bertolini, stating that it wouldn't be right because the young man had offered his room, everything feels as though it's sincere. And then you look beyond the initial act and see that she is someone who is resentful of the fact that she must depend on the good nature of others. She is Janice. On one side of her face is the smile she presents to the world to show that she is kind and giving, and on the other side of her face is the sneer, the grimace, the woman who will promise something and then when she needs to impress, forget the promises completely. In many ways it could be said that there are elements of Austen in this novel. There are misunderstandings, pride, prejudice, confusion and affection, reluctant adoration and class separation. But where there is redemption in Pride and Prejudice, with Mr Darcy revealing himself as a man who was misunderstood, I had great pleasure in seeing Cecil Vise depart Lucy's life when she realised that she was in love with someone else, in love with George. Though it takes wise words from George's father to make her realise she needs to show some courage and backbone and take that step off the precipice in order to be happy. The end of this book always makes me cry, but they are happy tears, honest, they are happy. And Mr. Emerson's words about love and being happy are so beautiful. Do trust me, Miss Honeychurch, though life is very glorious, it is difficult. She was still silent. Life, wrote a friend of mine, is a public performance on the violin in which you must learn the instrument as you go along. I think he puts it well. Man has to pick up the use of his functions as he goes along, especially the function of love. Then he burst out excitedly. That's it. That's what I mean. You love George. And after his long preamble, the three words burst against Lucy like waves from the open sea. Forster is one of my favourite early 20th century novelists, despite only having published five novels. This one happens to be one of his shortest, despite taking a considerable length of time to write, with the original story, that he referred to as his Lucy story, coming into being in 1902. But you didn't come here for the history of the book. 
it's a wonderful story and the fact that my copy smells like an antique bookshop just makes it that much more of an experience every single time I reread it. Did I enjoy it? I think that my comments attest to the fact that I love this book. It simply reinforced my love of the film, which is a rare occurrence when you consider my history when it comes to book adaptations. There is something so beautiful about a love story that is also a story of growth and need and friendship and misunderstandings. Though Mr. Emerson is a minor character in the scheme of things, as you have seen, he has some of the most powerful lines in the entire novel. He sees what is ignored by even those who are living through it. He is looking out for his son, but he is also concerned for Lucy and doesn't want her to miss out on the love he experienced with his wife because of how other people may perceive it. He knows that ultimately the opinion of others matters for nothing when it comes to love and happiness. Will I read it again? This is actually a regular reread, and this is the second time I've read it in less than 12 months. There is something so beautiful that it makes me cry when I read the story of George and Lucy. I relish my dislike of Cecil and enjoy picking at the faults of Charlotte. Admittedly, Lucy does allow a lot of things to happen to her. She is somewhat passive when it comes to the events of her own life until she finally sums up the courage to do something about her true feelings. But even then, she is on the verge of running away. She lives in fear of disappointing people, but I honestly believe that this is as much to do with the expectations families had of their daughters in the early 1900s and before as it is with anything else. Would I recommend to other readers? If you love Pride and Prejudice, you love a happy ever after that is spent basking on the banks of the River Arno. You like reading of misunderstandings and growth, of young girls who discover who they are, then pick up a room with a view and then watch the 1985 film. I say the 1985 film because in 2007, Andrew Davis produced a version for... UK TV stations that included an ending which is definitely not in the book. And now I need to make an apology. This episode was supposed to have been released last week. Unfortunately, first I experienced an adverse reaction to a medication that I take regularly and believe me when I say it was incredibly unpleasant. And then I had my first day in the office for 19 months, which gave me a considerable number of things to think about quite seriously. I hope that this has made up for it, and I will be back next week with a special guest for an episode about a cult hit. I'm also going to be introducing mini-sodes over the next month or so, where I take a look at the strangely popular Hallmark movies and mysteries, including characters like Hannah Swenson, Aurora Teagarden, Claire Darrow, and Amy Winslow, among others. Well, the last cup has gone in the dishwasher, the closed sign has been turned around, so it's time to end this, another episode of The Bookshop. I hope you enjoyed it and will come back again for more. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a review or give the show a star rating over on Podchaser. No feedback is bad feedback if it's constructive. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at notbeforecoffeepodcast. 
Well, I have to go and pick another book from the shelf for next week and spray my face with aloe vera yet again and settle down with another cup of coffee, though this time it will be an iced frappuccino. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. <laughs>